Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Last episode we did was actually two episodes. We split it into two. It was not intended to be two episodes, but we just went on and on. But to be fair, we were introducing Spider-Man. We were introducing, you know, Ant-Man in his own book. We were going to really try, folks, to get through more issues per podcast. That is the concept. We're going to try to get through a month at a time. The rubber is meeting the road here. We're going to see if we can get through four issues in under 70 minutes tonight. That's our goal. So what we're going to be doing today is Fantastic Four number seven, and then we'll go to uh, Journey into Mystery number 85, which is the third issue of Thor, essentially. Then Strange Tales 101, where they're starting to try to spin off Johnny Storm into his own solo book. And... Finally, Tales to Astonish number 36, which will be the next adventures of the Ant-Man. Yes, exciting. Exciting indeed. Although, I, honestly, this month doesn't feel quite as uh, monumentous as last month did. So, you <laughs> Oh, know. no. We'll... <laughs> yeah, this is, I think this is the least monumentous of all the months that we have done so far. Well, I shouldn't say that. There is one huge introduction tonight, a huge character introduction, who I believe that you have just seen the season finale of the TV show that he is in, and I have not, so no spoilers. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Let's go ahead and get started with Fantastic Four number seven. Let's do it. So uh, on the cover, the Fantastic Four is wanted, dead or alive, in a big poster. And there's a caption, why does the human race turn against the Fantastic Four? Only the master of Planet X knows the answer. And then we've got a classic flying saucer yes. with a speech balloon saying, we escaped just in time. We can't remain on Earth any longer. We've got to head for planet X. While someone in the torch-wielding crowd is yelling, down with the Fantastic Four. Now, presumably, they're trying to get the last supply of the shaving cream at Adam. <laughs> yes, that's planet X, isn't it? Yes. If we just follow those planets, we'll get to planet X in no time. <laughs> this Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century, a classic. We were just talking about in our last episode or one of our last episodes about how in the DC universe, like they'll build a Flash museum for the Flash and in the Marvel universe, they never celebrate anybody. Of course, this issue begins with the exception that proves the rule as the Fantastic Four is being invited to Washington, D.C. to give a special talk before a congressional dinner to show their the country's appreciation of them. I'm like, OK, well, that is the opposite of what I said. But then by the time the talk is over, everybody is screaming for their heads with a torch-wielding mob. So it is literally the exception <laughs> that proves the rule. <laughs> yes. So we're first introduced to, what's his name, Kurgo, K-U-R-R-G-O, who is a hideous-looking, big-headed creature who is the despotic ruler of this Planet X. You would think they would bother to name their own planet, but <laughs> apparently they just decide to call it Planet X for want of anything better. Hey, uh, we never we never named our star. We just call it the sun. We don't even have a name for it. Uh, do, don't we, though? <laughs> <laughs> but we did name our planet. That's the thing, though. Well, we never named our moon. We just call it the moon. Okay. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Reminds me, actually, the B-52s song. There's a moon in the sky. It's called the moon. Exactly. So, there exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we see a little bit of them talking about how their planet is doomed because of, I think, a big asteroid that's going to hit it or something like that. And so they only have two spaceships. Right, only the, for for whatever what is it? Um, it says they've never cared for space travel, so they only right. built two spaceships. 
Right. Yes. So th- they have no Elon Musk on their planet, or <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> or whoever else, Richard, or the other Richard Branson. Yes. Yes. People keep sharing on Facebook. I can't pay my doctor bills, and Whitey's on the moon, as <laughs> Bill Scott Heron once said, and that has never been more true than this week. <laughs> They've said that they only have these two ships, and so they can't evacuate everyone from the planet because there's too many people to fit on these two different ships. So they decide to use one ship to go and get the Fantastic Four because Reed Richards can help them out. So, so we just had, in the Hulk, we just had another alien race. It's like, we need to go to Earth and find the most brilliant person on Earth, Bruce Banner, which they could detect from their far alien planet. And now these aliens from another planet have detected the most brilliant person on Earth, Reed Richards. So these two alien races seem to have different genius detectoscopes because they're finding different geniuses. One's using Apple, the other one's using Android. Uh, yes. I think so. <laughs> Reed is trying to get everyone to go to this uh, congressional thing, and nobody else wants any part of it. Johnny is just afraid that he is going to get all flummoxed uh, and burst into flame as part of his nervousness. And the thing is afraid that he's just going to be exposed for a freak, and then he'll lose his temper and basically wreck Congress. And Sue is afraid that she will get flustered and turn invisible and cause a scene. And, you know, but they're still getting ready. We get some antics between Johnny and Ben, which is... I don't think this is the the first time they've gotten into these sorts of antics, like not the ones where they're really getting upset with each other, but more like the college prank sort of things. Yeah, we've been trending in that direction. Now we've arrived here. So So then Reed stretches his head into the air conditioning vent and it comes (laughs) out all flat from the other side and looks horrendously (laughs) ugly, horrendously disturbing. It's Flat Stanley. Yes. he. Yes. Uh, Wait, Flat Stanley. <laughs> huh? Uh-huh. Flat Stanley Lieber. All right. Well, we we're we're gonna have to I think start moving through these things faster if we're going to start try to get through four episodes and things. So they go to Washington D.C. They plan to give their speech, but meanwhile, this robot has arrived from Planet X and he has brought a hostility ray. So just when the Fantastic Four are being wined and dined, he launches his hostility ray suddenly. And there's some <laughs> there's some funny panels here. A wife is bringing her husband dinner, and it's all sort of a parody of early 60s domesticality. And she's like, here's your dinner, darling. And he says, thanks, honey. And then suddenly the hostility rate hits her, and she says, don't you honey me, you creep. So then everybody is turning hostile. Suddenly, Congress is turning hostile to the Fantastic Four. They're throwing things at them. The Fantastic Four are desperately trying to escape. They find themselves getting escorted by the robot with his big spaceship. He says, oh, you're never going to be welcome on Earth again. Everybody hates you. You have to come. I will give you asylum on Planet X. And they're like, uh, okay, they can tell something's a little something's a little fishy with this offer, but they go ahead and accept. They go all the way back through to Planet X. Then we get a gorgeous page on page 15 where they arrive on Planet X and they are descending through an anti-gravity beam onto the planet through this 100-level city. It's very, very Mobius. You get the feeling that Mobius, uh, when he did like The Long Tomorrow, might have been influenced by this page. Yeah, this is just an absolutely transfixing image. <laughs> yes. This is the kind of image that could very much just end up being a train wreck. It's just the kind of thing where you could end up with something where your eyes don't know where to go. You're not sure what the perspective is. You don't know what it's telling you. But they were able to pull it off masterfully here. Yeah. So I should say all four of our issues tonight are written, well, 
to a certain extent, by Stanley, penciled by Jack Kirby and inked by Dick Ayers. Ayers is doing a very good job here, although obviously if he's inking all four books this week, he's a little rushed, but he does a good job here. So then, better, they, than, better than last month, certainly. Yes, he does do a better job than last month. Yeah, I like it. So then they arrive on Planet X, and then they're told, like, oh, by the way, you know, we only have two spaceships, and we our planet is about to be destroyed by an asteroid, and you will be too if you do not save us and figure out some way to solve this problem. They then say, we don't like that. They fight the robot. The robot kicks their ass. So then finally Reed says, okay, I'm going to have to figure out a way to save your planet. He creates something and then he comes up with a very clever solution. He says, I have invented a reducing gas. I'm going to shrink everybody on the planet down to tiny size. And then that way you can all fit in one of these two ships. And in that one ship with all of you shrunk down to tiny size, you can all take off and try to find a better planet. And he's like, and then when you arrive, I'll have enlarging gas and you'll enlarge and live on the planet. So they're like, okay, that sounds good. You can go ahead and take the other ship and go home and we'll take one ship that we've all shrunk down in. Now, presumably, you would think they would have a hard time, you know, manning the controls if they're all really (laughs) tiny and the ship was made for full-size people. And if there's time to just build a new ship, you would think then they could have just built new ships and and that would have been fine. Meanwhile, Kirko, the dictator of Planet X, he then comes up with a plan where he is going to be the only one who has the enlarging gas and that he's going to force all of his people to remain tiny while he is full size and rules over them. But then he, I guess, just takes too long with this plan and doesn't make it on the ship and everybody takes off without him and he's got his canister of enlarging gas. And then as they take off, no one has noticed that Kurgo is left behind. So then the Fantastic Four take off, seemingly unaware of that. And Sue says, are you sure the enlarging gas will work when they reach their new planet, Reed? After all, you never had time to test it. Then there's clearly a typo here. Reed is supposed to say there was no enlarging gas, Sue. It was just an empty projectile. I only told them about it so they would consent to my plan. But once they reach their new world, it won't matter. They'll all be the same size. And in this vast universe of ours, one size is relative anyway. But then they accidentally said reducing gas, which makes no sense. So I think that this is... A clever story. This is the first truly forgotten story that we've gotten to. Kurgo and Planet X never come up again. There is no reason if you're studying the history of the Fantastic Four to ever even discover this issue exists unless you're reading this issue. It is a completely self-contained story, but I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it it sort of reiterates in some ways some of the old tropes of their pre-superhero books in that they were all either you know, monsters or alien invaders or you know people on an alien planet who have to deal with something. So this sort of feels very much like it's still kind of playing on those same elements, but doing it in an interesting way. And this is, uh, I think, going to be somewhat typical of a certain strain of Fantastic Four issues for the next year or so. You'll have a number of issues sort of like this with the aliens that end up being sort of a Twilight Zone-ish sort of thing. I mean, this is a very Twilight Zone ending. Right. I mean, this is like what is the Burgess Meredith time enough at last kind of ending to it in some ways about these guy never showing up again. I I didn't research that to know whether he ever showed up again. I know that I don't recognize these guys. But at at first, I did actually sort of think that he was the creature that they found in the Terminus armor 
when no. they uh, <laughs> when they finally uh, you know revealed that Terminus was actually just this hideous small alien. But anyway, that's a storyline from years later. No, they are not those guys. But that was a that was a whole separate thing. As far as I can tell from my research, we never hear of Planet X or the Shaven Cream Adam or Kurgo again. This <laughs> is the only time that we see them, and that's good. You don't need to have every story launch into a whole franchise. You can have a standalone story. This story certainly works better standing alone than if you tried to bring Kurgo back year after year. It's a complete story. It's a complete little parable that works fine in and of itself. It's funny. So you've got Reed Richards inventing reducing gas, which of course is something that Ant-Man would do many years later when they retold this story in the Marvel saga issues. They said that he had gotten the reducing gas from Henry Pym, that he was already in touch ah. with Henry Pym, and he he was recreating Henry Pym's reducing gas. Of course, at this point in the Ant-Man comics, he doesn't have a gas yet. He's still using <laughs> liquid. Which, and, uh, and could you explain to folks what Marvel Age is for those who are Marvel not of saga. our generation? Marvel Saga, sorry, yes. Mar- they, they did a bizarre comic book uh, in the 80s where they just cut and pasted old issues of the original 60s comics into one saga where they, it was mainly just text. And they would have large chunks of text with cut and pasted images from the original comics where they tried to combine it all into one big continuity, sort of like we're doing on this very podcast. Yes. And they told the whole story and they would fill in little gaps along the way. And this was one of the gaps they filled in because at this point, the comics were still very separate. And even though we did see the previous month that both the Fantastic Four and Ant-Man were talking about having unstable molecules, implying that maybe they had been in contact with each other. As we'll see when we get to the Strange Tales issue this month, they were still sort of maintaining this fiction that these were separate entities. This was sort of a standard thing in comic books at the time to pretend that your comic books were published by different companies. So we'll see on the cover of the (laughs) Human Torch story and Strange Tales this month that he appears courtesy of the Fantastic Four magazine as if they had to arrange some sort of special legal arrangement in order to borrow the character and pretending that it's not all just one big company. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But yeah, that is certainly a weird thing. It seems almost like some kind of weird in-joke or maybe like a jab at DC in some way or... No, I think it was a legal thing. It's always been my impression it's some sort of shady practice where it has something to do with, you know, postal mail rates or things like that, where I don't know. Uh, Here I am (laughs) tossing around wild conspiracy theories, and I don't really know or understand anything at all. Okay, well, that's, uh, you know, standard. So, yeah. <laughs> you've, um, you've, been, you've been putting up with this for 46 years. <laughs> yes. So then we're moving on to Journey into Mystery number 85, third issue of Thor and first appearance of Loki. Yes, so you have seen the Loki finale and I have not. Is this it good? This is true. It, it is. I mean, you know, I literally just finished it before coming on here. We started recording a little bit later than we were supposed to because I still had like five more minutes I needed to finish on Loki. So I'm right there. Are you a true Marvel fan? Now, we, you know, you know, true comic book geeks, their favorite part of watching anything from the MCU is getting to that part near the end of the credits, not the post-credit sequence, getting to that part near the end of the credits where they thank the creators whose work they've borrowed from for this episode and figuring out, oh, they're thanking Ralph Macchio and Mark Grunewald because they created the timekeepers and figuring out why everybody gets thanked. Do you ever do this? Yeah, I do, but I did not do that on this episode because, like I said, I was late to start the podcast. (laughs) So, of course, you'll notice at the end of every episode, they say Loki created. Well, of course, Loki was created by the ancient Norwegians, but they always say Loki created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. 
because, in fact, this issue was supposedly plotted by Stanley and scripted by Larry Lieber. Is Larry Lieber still alive? I don't know. I think he was a younger brother, though, wasn't he? I don't know. I'm going to look it up right now. I'm going to Google <laughs> Larry Lieber. That's, that makes for good radio, right? Where you're Googling things. <laughs> Meanwhile, an artist friend of mine, Mark Brooks, did post a couple weeks ago of the screen capture of when he ended up on one of those thanks oh, cool. of things. Because uh, he had, I, I think maybe he worked on the, I don't know if it was the initial appearance or maybe just some, some crucial stories involving Sylvie. Aha. Okay. So Larry Lieber's still alive, going strong. Really? Yes, he is uh, 89 years old, and okay. he is he is going strong. So Larry Lieber, I hope he gets a kick out of watching Loki and seeing his creator credit every month. Yes, so, and, I, and I hope he gets a check. I well, I mean that's the thing is that Marvel, <laughs> like DC, DC got in trouble when the Superman movie came out in 1978, and they got chastised and they got uh, sort of bullied into giving people checks every time a movie came out and Marvel never did. Marvel managed to avoid that partially because they sort of had this fig leaf of Stan Lee's cameos for making it seem like we're getting along well with the creators of these characters. And so when Ween created Wolverine and he also created the Batman character Lucius Fox, who was played by Morgan Freeman in the Christopher Nolan movies. Well, every time Lucius Fox appeared in one of those Christopher Nolan movies, Len Wein got a big check. Every time Wolverine appears in a Marvel movie, Len Wein got nothing. So he is like, well, I'm sure glad I created, you know, a minor character for DC because that's earned me a lot more money than creating Wolverine for Marvel. And I am, I would imagine Larry Lieber gets nothing. I've gotten the impression that since Disney has really taken the reins on everything, they've tried to get that stuff buttoned up a little bit better and try to shield themselves from legal liability of people coming back and suing them for this kind of stuff. So that's my impression, although I am pretty sure that I remember Jim Starlin saying that he was not aware that Thanos was used in the Avengers movie until he saw it himself in the theater. (laughs) That's not a good sign. <laughs> it's not a good sign. However, um, however, I think he was then involved shortly afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, shortly after that reveal at the end of the first Avengers movie, I think he had some sort of finger in things after that. Okay. So then we have Journey into Mystery number 85. Loki is standing on top of a tower. He says, I challenge you to match your powers against mine, Thor. It says, never before has the mighty Thor faced a foe as dangerous as Loki, the god of mischief. Thor is saying, it is Loki, my sworn enemy. He has found me at last. And then it talks about other stories you'll find on the inside because we're still not filling a whole issue with Journey, of Journey into Mystery here. There's still reprints of old Marvel monster comics. So then we go ahead and we launch into the issue. So right away, we're getting stuff we haven't gotten yet. We're getting Asgard and Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge, and Heimdall, who right away appears before anybody else. Loki, it turns out, has been frozen into a tree for, quote, ages, unquote. And then he has gradually taken control of the tree. He has been told that he can never flee the tree until someone sheds a tear for him. But he's like, ah, ha, ha, I can take control of the tree, release a leaf from the tree. It can go in Heimdall's eye, and that can cause the eye to tear up. And now someone has shed a tear for me so I can escape from the tree. He's been in the tree for ages. He says that Thor has not been seen for ages. So only many years later make it clear that, you know, Thor did something wrong and was banished to Earth essentially as baby. Don Blake, 
as long as it has taken Tom Blake to grow up, Thor has been missing from Asgard and Loki seemingly has been stuck as a tree that whole time. Now Loki goes to Earth, he dresses up, and it's a very snappy dresser mm-hmm. as a human. And of course, who is going to be impressed by his dressing as much as Jane Foster? She says, Loki, um, a lovely name. And he seems so dashing and romantic. So she continues to be a character seemingly conceived by an incel. She seems to be she continues <laughs> to be a character that matches certain prejudices of against women being suckers for any manly guy, or even in this case, I guess just a romantic guy. Let me back up and just mention two things. One, I know that Dick Ayers inked this issue, but it looks as though that splash page might have been inked by Cinna. Oh, you mean where they're fighting on top of the billboard? Yeah. No way. No, you don't think so? Not in a million years, unless okay. unless he was drunk. <laughs> Okay. Uh, All right. So let's leave that there then. Uh, The other thing I wanted to point out is when Loki turns the people into negatives on the street in order to draw Thor out. This is a fantastic looking effect, which given the day's technology would have been a bit tricky to pull off. So what Kirby and heirs have clearly done here is they have gone ahead and drawn and inked these three foreground characters and then cut those out created a photostat negative of them cut that photostat negative out and then pasted it on top of the original art so that means it had to have been penciled and inked then photostatted, turned into a negative through the photostatting process somehow. I'm presuming they could do that. And then cut out, presumably with an X-Acto knife, and pasted back down on the rest of the art that had been inked. And it is gorgeous. It's a really fantastic effect. It is. And this is just the first that we will see in the Marvel superhero books of Kirby pushing the boundaries and testing the limits of what you could do in comic book art, not just in terms of his bananas imagination, but in terms of he's going to end up doing some photo collage, he's going to end up doing, you know, all sorts of different experimental stuff. And this is sort of like a little preview of that. And it looks great. Yeah, it's awesome. So then finally, so this works, uh, turning the people into negatives brings Thor's attention. Thor then, of course, says, now I'll just use the hammer as a super fan to blow the antimatter particles at the negative victims. And as the antimatter reverses their atoms, it transforms them back into positive people again. As we said last week, it's just science. It's just science. So then Loki now wants to fight Thor. He hypnotizes him, tries to have him get rid of the hammer. He convinces him to give the hammer to an illusion of Thor, thinking that that will take care of it. He then sends him off to go free the animals. He says, I want to create mischief. Thor, go free the animals. He does not realize that once Thor has had the hammer out of his hands for 60 seconds, he becomes Don Blake again. He becomes Don Blake. That breaks the hypnotism. Then it's all at war between Loki and Thor. They're chasing each other across town. And there's some really gorgeous work here, some lovely scenes. Eventually, Thor realizes that Loki's powers don't work in the water. Now, Brian Cronin at Comic Should Be Good at CBR.com recently did a review of this going like, did this ever come up again? No, it didn't. Have we ever seen Loki using his powers while wet again? And he's like, yes. Okay, so here's various panels over the course of the years where Loki was seemingly wet while he used his powers. So this never comes up again. Was it from the original Legends, though? I'm going to take a wild guess and say no. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I, I know that there was in ancient Germanic culture, there was the whole thing about the afterlife being underwater. You know, they, they would have ship burials even for Germanic peoples who were inland because it was like you're essentially being sent off into the sea of the dead, more or less. And so that's why I was wondering if that might have some basis in the actual original legends. Later in Avengers number one, they'll say that Loki's powers don't work when he's encased in metal. And somehow that was more convincing to me. I'm like, yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. like that could be from the North. That could be from North legend. This doesn't seem like it's from North legend, but I could be wrong. Yeah, the whole iron thing sounds more like Celtic legend with fairies and stuff like that. Can't stand the touch of smelted metals and things like that. So right. One way or the other, they were probably just all making this up and flying by the seat of their pants. So who knows? I would imagine So then Thor puts Loki on his hammer, flings Loki all the way back to Asgard, and then we just see one brief panel of the hammer landing Loki in Asgard and then turning around to go back home. And it just says, hurled at almost the speed of thought, the magic hammer carries its living burden higher and higher until it reaches the Rainbow Bridge in the Citadel of the Gods, where it sweeps down in a great arc before Odin, Baldur, Tur, and the other astonished gods. So then we just see the back of everybody's head. So this is the rather underwhelming... (laughs) introduction of Odin to the Marvel Universe, just the back of his head saying, once again, my eldest son, the Lord of Thunder has vanquished Loki. And then we just see the back of Baldur's head and the back of Tur's head and the back of some other random god. The hammer returns to Thor. He then presumably turns back to Don Blake. Of course, Jane Foster is like, imagine the God of Thunder and the God of Mischief both battling here on Earth before our eyes. How romantic. It makes our own ordinary lives seem so dull, doesn't it, Dr. Blake? And he's like, well, uh, it's all in your point of view. And then we get to the end of the issue. So we've got this whole thing here where in the first two issues of Thor we had, it seemed like Don Blake would turn into Thor and have no memories of Thor's previous life. There was no indication of Thor's previous life. There was no indication of Asgard or any other gods. And more importantly, there was no indication that when Don Blake was becoming Thor, he was having any other memories of before being Don Blake. But all of a sudden, in this one, he doesn't recognize Loki at first. And then Loki's like, don't you remember me? And he's like, Loki, it's my ancient enemy. And then he doesn't go to Asgard yet, but he knows to return Loki to Asgard. So Thor's memories seem to be returning. It seems almost like it's not memory so much as just sort of instinct or some kind of sense memories or something like that are coming back. You know, not like he necessarily remembers, oh, that's right. I now remember my childhood in Asgard. You know, it's more like, oh, wait, Loki, right, needs to go back to Asgard. Hey, doesn't like to get wet. No, maybe I just made that one up. On the last page, as you said, we have the underwhelming introduction of Heimdall and Odin and Tyr. No, well, we met, we met Heimdall a little more clearly before. This is Odin and Balder and Oh, Balder and Tyr. I'm sorry. One thing I have to point out, though, is they do establish right off that Odin likes fabulous headwear. <laughs> they do. So... <laughs> Jackery famously attempted to go through all 100 issues of Thor that he did, giving Odin different headgear in every single issue he did, getting more and more and more elaborate in this sort of Liberace-like fashion (laughs) as he just starts wearing crazier and crazier, crazier stuff, crazier outfits, crazier throne. His throne is always more and more elaborate. His outfits are always more and more elaborate. His headgear is always more and more fabulous. And we just get a very quick preview of Odin's wonderful headgear. Yes, with a couple of big sweeping bird wings coming out of it that, you know, he saw Thor's winged helmet was just like, yeah, right. Like, those are wings. Here you go, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I love this. The panels where Loki calls the swarm of pigeons and then he's 
he is lifted into the air on the pigeons, but it's clear he's stepping on them. He is standing on a flock of pigeons in the air. You get enough pigeons together and you can walk on them. That's just, that's the way it works. I mean, if just one pigeon, you can't stand on one pigeon, that would be silly. But if you've got a whole group of pigeons, then you can walk on them. Or you know what? These may be African swallows. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maybe that would explain it. All right. So we we had the first introduction of Loki. And uh, so this is very close to a costume that we do see at one point in the Loki miniseries. Although I won't go any further into that for anyone who (laughs) who hasn't watched it yet. Well, it's not that different from what Tom Hiddleston wore in the first Thor movie, which I just recently rewatched. Loki is a remarkably complete character in this. He seems like a character who could live for 60 years and eventually have his own TV show on Marvel (laughs) Comics on Disney Plus 60 years later. This is a very strong introduction to the character, and he's a very strong character. He's delightful. He certainly works so much better than Thor fighting aliens or fighting communists. (laughs) It was always awkward having Thor fighting aliens. It's always even more awkward to have Thor fighting communists. And he's suddenly, the book comes into its own here. And it's like, oh, this is what Thor should be doing. He should be fighting gods. He should be fighting Loki. But they really don't learn the lesson entirely yet, because we still have the Cobra and Mr. Hyde that are, you know, going to be coming up. And it's like, God. Oh, no, we've we've still got like, essentially, it's still we've still basically got four more years before they give up on Earth and start setting more of the adventures on Asgard. So we've got a tremendous number of communists still to come. I (laughs) allow me to reassure you. Communist aliens and really generic and underpowered supervillains to be fighting (laughs) for. Hey, he's got all the bendiness of a cobra, okay? (laughs) Because, of course, that's what made cobras so frightening. (laughs) Watch out, Thor. He's going to bend, Thor. He's going to bend right at you. All right, so now we are going to move on to Strange Tales number 101, starring the fabulous Human Torch, and as Matt pointed out, then has an asterisk, and at the bottom of the cover... On the cover, not the, I had remembered this as being the splash page, but apparently it's on the cover. It says, asterisk, by permission of, quote, the Fantastic Four, close quote, magazine. <laughs> really? I'm just going to reiterate that this, I believe, was some sort of sketchy scheme, and I don't recall in what way. I'm just going to reiterate that. So then the image is there's a gigantic parachute ride at an amusement park that is toppling over, and all these people look like they're about to die. There is someone sort of skulking behind a stone thing wearing a green outfit. He's saying, even the Human Torch can't save all those plunging men at once. And so the Destroyer wins again, and the Human Torch is saying, if I save those men, the Destroyer will go free. But I can't let them fall. I can't. And then this never happens in the issue. (laughs) This segment, the sort of Human Torch solo series, in my opinion, never really works. No, it really doesn't. And as a matter of fact, they, they sort of set themselves up for failure at the very beginning because, you know, we've already sort of established that the Fantastic Four, they're not wearing masks. Everyone knows who Reed Richards is. They're at this point publicly known. And, oh, very uh, much so. Right. They go through this whole contrived thing on the first page of the story about how, oh, yeah, well, so those few buddies of mine who knew my identity have gone off to college or gone to do, you know, gone off to the army or something like that. And they've been sworn to secrecy and no one else knows. And so I can live my secret life here in Glenville. They even have this whole like panel, which is just nothing but text explaining some of this stuff. And it's like, you're just setting yourself up for it. It is just bizarre. It is 
is so mm. bizarre that suddenly they feel the need. They're like, well, if he's going to have his own book, he's got to have a secret identity. You know, to be fair, they're acknowledging that yes. previous to this point, he did not have a secret identity. They're going like, okay, they go, four of the Chinese schoolmates did know his secret identity, but they graduated high school last year. Now one of them is in the army, two were away at college, and the fourth is working in Chicago. All have been sworn to secrecy. So then it's even more bizarre because he seems to be living with his sister, who is openly living as a member of the Fantastic Four, with everybody knowing that her name is Sue Storm and that she is a member of the Fantastic Four. And Johnny Storm, her brother, is living with her in Glenville, which is presumably a commuter town near enough to New York City where they are the Fantastic Four. But nobody knows that he is the Human Torch. It is the craziest thing. It really is. He goes into his home, which of course is made entirely right. well, out well, of Well, this, this is after he just did some training, basically, by outracing an atomic-powered guided missile, which I'm sure the radar operators in the ground were really thrilled about that whole thing. <laughs> yes. And also, it's an atomic-powered guided missile. It's not that it has an atomic warhead. This one actually has some sort of atomic engine that is pushing it. He lives in an entirely asbestos house. He recalls the origin. Then we get to his thing. Now, once they've established he has a secret identity, well, it turns out that the entire issue will consist of a villain who he could have defeated rather easily if he is not constantly throughout the issue trying to make sure he does not reveal his secret identity, which <laughs> right. was not secret like two days ago, apparently, and now he's suddenly trying to turn into a secret. So then we have the newspaper editor is getting these notes in the mail from someone calling himself the Destroyer, saying he's going to destroy the new amusement park, and the newspaper editor is crumpling these notes up away and throwing them away. But sure enough, someone is uh, attacking the amusement park. Someone is almost killed on a roller coaster ride. Johnny is like, oh, I must change into the torch and save him. No one else can. But if I flame on myself, everyone here will learn my secret identity. So then he has to come up with a clever plan to rescue the person and maintain his secret identity. Then the whole thing basically happens again. There's another note sent to the editor. There is the parachute ride. And once again, he has to come up with a clever way to keep his secret identity while he saves everybody on the parachute ride. The Thing briefly stops by, celebrity cameo, uh, saying, let me help you. He says, no, 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 I can do it myself. Then finally, he figures it all out. He figures out that, oh, it's only the really tall rides that are getting attacked. That's because from those rides, you can see that there is a secret commie sub, that there is a Soviet submarine that has been docking on the nearby beach and did not want to be seen by the tall rides at the amusement park. He then smokes out the sub, he boils the water around the sub, forces them to surrender, and it turns out that the destroyer was actually the newspaper editor himself who owns the private beach where the Soviet sub has been docking. He is secretly a Soviet agent. He was sending himself the notes to throw all suspicion off of himself, of course, and then he sends everybody to jail and the torch flies off. Now, you see, if the Soviets have this kind of agent in the U.S., why didn't they send people like him to go get the Ant-Man in the previous month? <laughs> you know, why don't you send the person who's, you know, oh, yeah, I'm just a newspaper editor, you know, rather than, uh, oh, yes, hello, I am agent from Soviet Russia. Yeah, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still stuck on that. As we will find out, they have lots of agents in America, as we will find out later this month. All right. So this was, I would say, an inauspicious beginning for this solo series. And I think it is predictive of what's to come. Yes. This is not my favorite outing for these guys. Inauspicious and emblematic, I would say. Is, uh... <laughs> yes, that's, that's a good way of putting it. I, will, I, I concur. So this issue is credited to Lee and Lieber as writers. The 
Journey into Mystery was also credited. Now this is on MarvelFandom.com. Journey into Mystery also credited Lee and Lieber. Now the Ant-Man we're going to get to is on MarvelFandom.com credited just to Lieber. So the Ant-Man issue is going to be the first issue we get to that is supposedly not written at all by Stanley. It's just written entirely by Larry Lieber. So this issue, and it's a fairly clever plot, feels like a 1960s TV show episode in terms of having a series of incidents that plant a series of clues. And then our hero cleverly figures out what the clues were and figures out what's the secret pattern behind these incidents. It's a well-drawn book by Kirby, although it seems like he did draw it. It's Inked with a heavy hand, you get the feeling it's more done in terms of layouts. You're seeing just as much errors as you're seeing Kirby here. Generally speaking, this series never works. It never works <laughs> to give Johnny a secret identity and a life in the suburbs. And right away, we get this not working in terms of he is, you know, really constantly putting people in danger. It feels like a DC comic to a certain extent. It feels like a Superman comic in terms of half of Superman's adventures in the 50s and 60s were about putting people in danger in order to preserve his secret identity. And it was so refreshing to get the Fantastic Four and just throw all that out. And then suddenly we backtracked into that whole concept all over again of putting people in danger to preserve your secret identity. It's pretty silly. They do improve the concept a little bit in about a year or so when they drop the whole idea of the secret identity and also bring the thing into it to where it's like yeah. thing, the thing and the human torches sort of side adventures together still doesn't work that great, but it works better than what we're seeing here. Of course, at that point, Kirby's long gone. So the book suffers that way. But oh, yeah. I agree that that concept did work better. By that point, the art had gone downhill. But as a, as a concept, you're right, the concept improves once they add the thing. Generally, it does. Although there are things like the issue where they time travel back to the days of King Arthur and fight Kang. And, uh, I love that issue. <laughs> I can see that. It certainly is just one of those just utterly ridiculous bananas kind of Silver Age comics that you're going to have a strong reaction to it one way or the other. <laughs> Let me put it that way. We will get to it. We definitely will. Shall we move on to Tales to Astonish number 36? Yes, our final issue of the month. This is Tales to Astonish 36, the third appearance of Henry Pym, the second appearance of Ant-Man. He became Ant-Man in the last time we saw him. So on the cover, Henry Pym is riding an ant, and they are both inside a transparent cube and it's being held down by a pair of hands although with the perspective it looks at first like like their bare feet but then it's like no those those toes are too long those are hands but it looks a little weird from the person with the hands you see a speech balloon saying so the famous ant-man has walked into the trap of comrade x so we got more commies in this one also it's a little bit is he famous yet at this point I guess maybe so. I, that's right. I think yeah. they sort of do a step. I guess this. I guess the Soviets know who he is because he just foiled one of their. No, plots. he's not even foiling one. Of, yeah, I mean, I, they, he did in the last issue, but at the beginning, right, that's what I mean. They're just following news reports of him foiling a bank robbery, and they're like, "Oh, you know, Ant Man. He's so famous. We oh, even right. here in the Soviet Union, we're we're getting these tales of Ant Man. Generally, in these early Marvel comics, everybody is famous right away. Right, and often in the second issue of their appearance, you have the entire world knowing who they are and going like, oh, we must learn more about them. We must track them down. Yeah. Then uh, Henry Pym writing his aunt inside the glass trap here is saying, 
a glass prison. I've got to find a way to escape before it's too late. And then we see featuring a new Ant-Man thriller. And meanwhile, we see some soldiers, presumably more Soviets, back in the background approaching the trapped Ant-Man who is being held down by Comrade X. Yes. So then we, as I said, we see Ant-Man foiling a bank robbery. Then in the Soviet Union, they're going like, once again, the American Ant-Man has performed an incredible feat. So they go, you, Comrade X, we want you to go to America and find out the secret of how Ant-Man were to shrink so that we can then use it for our own nefarious purposes. I love the fact that the poster of Khrushchev in the background is Khrushchev in a just angry, ugly grimace in the middle of haranguing and shouting, like a 20-foot-tall portrait that's hanging up behind the guy's desk. Presumably <laughs> in the middle of banging his shoe on a podium. Yes, yes. Uh, that's, that's how he posed for every painting. <laughs> so then we get a beautiful woman is going to the police. She's saying, oh, it's a matter of life and death. I need Ant-Man. I need Ant-Man. Well, he's got ants crawling everywhere. They bring the message back to him. So again, this issue is the first issue we've gotten, which is credited, according on MarvelFandom.com, plot and script to Larry Lieber, not Stan Lee. And maybe that's why it's so weird. We get to, what, for my money, maybe the weirdest moment we've gotten to in Marvel Comics so far. Ant-Man decides to go to the police station to help the woman. And first he says, let me get in this electronically controlled catapult to rocket me to an alley near the police station. And he climbs himself into this little human cannon, tiny little human cannon, because he's a tiny little guy. And then it shoots him across the city. Wait, hold on. I'm sorry. We got to back up and talk about the elevator. Like, yes. and <laughs> there's, there's this awesome little cutaway section where you where it shows you where his catapult is where like two bricks have been removed from the from the wall and then you know sort of a fake front put on them and that's a little hole for the catapult to shoot out of and then it shows where the passageway is and a secret panel and then there's a little miniature elevator shaft and an quote ant-sized elevator <laughs> so that once he gets back to the building he can walk in through a little trap door to his little ant elevator and come back up to the same place he left I, i'm sorry to interrupt but that's just i we can't let that one go by i love that panel it it is a gorgeous panel we both are lovers of kirby's cutaway diagrams generally speaking the big problem with these and an issues is that he can't change size at will and so he he spends half of his time as Ant-Man just figuring out how to get around or how to fight people when he can't become full size and how to just get across town when he can't become full size. The whole character makes so much more sense once he can actually transform his size. But no, he presumably still has to douse himself in chemicals. So then he shoots across town on this little cannon. And then, of course, when he lands, how does he keep from splatting when he lands? He uses his helmet to cause a bunch of ants to form a giant pile, and they go splat. He crashes into a giant pile of ants every time he lands, shot out by this cannon. So he has a bunch of ants cushion his fall. Well done, my little friends. He says, he then gets in the woman's... Uh, I'm just picturing woman. someone walking by and seeing, like, you know, this huge swarm <laughs> ah! of ants forming, like, a mountain. <laughs> it's like, what on earth is going on? <laughs> All right. So, yes, he lands. So then he lands. He gets in the woman's handbag. Da, da, da. That will come up later. 
and he follows her back from the police station to her home. He then is talking to her. Again, cannot become normal size, so he has to sort of shout to be heard. She is explaining that last year in Europe, I fell in love with a man. A man I later learned was the deadly Red Master spy, Comrade X. He jilted me for another woman, and now I want revenge. I want him to pay for breaking my heart. He's hiding on a freighter docked at Pier 89. She sends him after Comrade X. He gets to Comrade X, but Comrade X has the Ant-Man's one weakness, a glass box. And he puts... The glass box over the Ant-Man, but Ant-Man then summons a whole bunch of ants who then bite the foot of the guy who is standing over the glass box with a rifle. The rifle drops on the glass box and breaks it open. Ant-Man then finds Comrade X. He (laughs) defeats Comrade X wonderfully by untying his shoes and then tying the shoelaces together and tripping him. (laughs) Like I said, these early Ant-Man issues are just so nuts. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, that yeah. is adorable. I mean, oh yeah, no, no, I, I'm not saying that necessarily in a bad way. I really, really like these early Ant-Man issues. Just, I mean, you know, before they sort of start figuring out, oh, man, I don't know if this concept really works. Right, right when they're first just like, you know, we are putting everything into this concept, and it's just like, yeah, we're gonna make it weird. <laughs> I, I, I love that part. Oh, and as and, we're getting weird. Yes. What were you going to say? Just going to say that earlier when he had the whole army of ants come in, of course, they're on a boat. So, you know, how many ants are there going to be living on a boat necessarily? So he actually gets the ants to haul pieces of wood to the edge of a pier, drop in and float on the wood out to the boat and then climb up the boat anchor chains to come and help him. So... <laughs> the Rube Goldberg machine that he has to put together to get his army of ants on the boat is once again just bananas. So then, after Comrade X crashes to the ground because he said his joys is tied together, then suddenly the army of ants swarms all over his face and pulls off in a truly horrific panel, pulls off his rubber face and reveals that it's actually the pretty woman who went to the police station is actually Comrade X, and Comrade X is actually Madame X. And Ant-Man points out, I was inside your handbag and I saw that you had a face mask in there and that you were both Madame X and Comrade X. And then he has her arrested and hauled away. And she does reappear again. She reappeared again many years later in the 1980s in a Steve Englehart issue of West Coast Adventures. Oh, really? I did not remember that. She did not appear for another 20 years. And somebody remembered her. Steve Englehart remembered her and brought her back just as the Soviet Union was crumbling in 1988, presumably she became a loose nuke that was sold off in the arms bazaars and became even more dangerous after that point. So this is more communism. They're trying to make Ant-Man work. The character really does not make sense unless he can actually change size, which he still cannot do. They're doing what they can with him. I mean, it's interesting to have a hero who can't throw a punch, you know, who has yeah. to, who can't do the basic things that you and I could do in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> It's just how many times can I can I use words like bananas and nuts and whatever, but it is sort of deliriously goofy in a in a really leans into it kind of I'm going to go all the way with this thing kind of way <laughs> that I find really, really endearing. And Kirby is still having fun of this. I think it's a lot of fun to draw Ant-Man in terms of like the worm's eye view shots and yes. the extremely foreshortened people standing over him. Absolutely. He's having a ton of fun, like on the first panel on page 12, where um, he's got the big can of 
spray, you know, bug spray or whatever he's about to hit on him. And we're seeing from Ant-Man's view, looking up past the boots and the, you know, extreme foreshortening on that thing. It's, I mean, that looks like that's just a fun, fun panel to draw. And he, yeah, he has lots of fun with all of the perspective that he can play around with on here. And just all of the crazy Rube Goldberg stuff that uh, Ant-Man's got to do in order to get his ant army to do what he needs it to do. That all of that just seems to be, once again, tons of fun to, to the storytellers. And very quickly, this will all start to break Kirby, and he <laughs> will have to drop some of these books. So he will not draw Ant-Man for very long. He will not draw the Human Torch for very long. But for now, he is doing heroic work. He drew all four books this month and he drew the hell out of them. Absolutely. But yeah, we're going to start seeing some other artists. We've already seen uh, Steve Ditko show up last month and uh, we're going to be seeing more of some artists like Don Heck. We're going to see Larry Lieber drawing a few stories. We're going to see uh, Dick Ayers is going to start penciling stuff. Eventually. Yeah, the, the anchor of all four of these issues, Dick Ayers is going to take over the penciling pretty quickly. Uh, does he do the penciling for this one? Yeah, I guess he does for a while, doesn't he? Yeah. I, 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 I think he pencils Human Torch. I'm not sure if he oh, pencils Ant-Man. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, you're right. He pencils Human Torch. And uh, Ant-Man runs through Ant-Man, and then later Giant-Man runs through a whole series of different uh, artists uh, over time. But yes, at this point, it's still almost all Kirby. Uh, he can only draw so many pages a day. You know, granted, the number of pages he was drawing a day was a massive amount of pages per day. But even so, it's still finite. So they had to figure out where they were going to use him. So it seems to me that Stan considered Kirby's highest and best use beyond Fantastic Four, doing as many covers as he could get out of him, and then doing at least the storytelling, the what they sometimes call layouts or breakdowns, for as many different comics as he could. So, you know, sometimes Kirby will be credited with full pencils, but sometimes you'll see that he's just credited with either layouts or breakdowns, which is where essentially you're figuring out, here's the pacing, here's what's going to happen in this panel, you know, here's a basic sketch for what the things are, but most of the details are left to be done later. And then that will either be handled by the inker, or they'll sometimes even have a situation where they'll send it to a separate penciler, and then it'll come to an inker later. And that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see plenty of that as we yes, go on. Yes, will. Um, okay, so I think we're, we're done with this one, aren't we? Yeah, this was the least monumentous month of Marvel <laughs> we've had so far. We have good issue of Fantastic Four. We've got certainly the biggest deal this month is the introduction of Loki, who has gone on to such a wonderful career from here and gets a very strong introduction. We've got the beginning of Human Torch's comic, so that's sort of a big deal, although he never sustains his own comic book after they try him out for a few years here, and then they give up for good, and it's been six years later, and he's not had his own comic book again. I think that Marvel team-up was originally supposed to go back and forth between being Spider-Man and Human Torch as the home character. There was a handful of Human Torch issues at the beginning that didn't have Spider-Man in them. Yeah, there were a handful. But it never worked. Yeah, it never worked. And then Ant-Man, his book falls apart too at some point, and then never really is able to sustain a monthly comic for most of his lifetime as well. But for now, we've got Fantastic Four, we've got Thor, we've got Human Torch, and we've got Ant-Man. Hulk is off this month because his book is bi-monthly, so we're going to have a different mix of comics next episode. But I think this was a fun 
episode. I think we've talked about some fun comics. As always, we encourage all of you to get a Marvel Unlimited subscription and read along there. Absolutely. And we are inviting folks to comment and discuss any of these episodes if you want at Matt's blog called Secrets of Story. www.secretsofstory.com And you will find posts there for each of our episodes where you can comment or discuss as you see fit, and we welcome you to do so. And you will see the covers. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much, everybody. We have enjoyed it, and we hope to have you here again next week to experience more of the Marvel Age of Comics. Exactly. Exciting. Exactly exciting. Exhilarating. We will see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye. (laughs) Take care. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.